0: I get to introduce Dr. Brown now. Uh, I've known Dr. Brown since 2006, I think it was 2006. It's all blurring together, time now. But uh, I sat in on a class that Dr. Brown was offering at the university on evangelicals in America. Uh, It wasn't the first time that I'd ever taken a class on evangelicalism uh, or Christianity in America. I'd taken one at an undergraduate level. I'd taken one in seminary. But taking it with Dr. Brown... I'd say she turned the gem a little bit, and I got to see evangelicalism uh, from a new angle and a new light. She intrigued me so much with what she did in that class that I actually sat in on it again at the 700 level uh, a year later and felt like, again, new vistas of understanding evangelicalism were opened up to me, and I really deeply appreciated uh, the conversations we had and uh, the class and how she brought to light... Different aspects of what it meant to be evangelical, the history of evangelicalism. Uh, and I just appreciate so much what I took away from those two class experiences. And uh, I was thrilled when she agreed to come and participate in, in this seminar. Uh, Dr. Brown's expertise, at least recent research, has been on charismatic and Pentecostal spirituality and those movements. Uh, back in the back, she's got two of those books. Uh, She's written three books and more articles than you can shake a stick at, I think. Uh, Articles and reviews in in peer-reviewed journals and uh, more popular journals as well. A very uh, sharp thinker, uh, incredible, careful research. If you just read the first chapter of that book, you see that. Uh, Dr. Brown's, again, as I said, her area of study is um, America, well... How would you describe your... It's broader than just Charismatic and Pentecostal spirituality. That's been global. Okay. Global Pentecostal and Charismatic spirituality. Um, Again, uh, just a fantastic scholar. Uh, She's written uh, those two books. And I know I'm plugging those hard. Because I think we should get those. Right? (laughs) Um, Since she's been here at IU, she's received uh, an endowment from the Lilly Foundation an award from the Templeton Foundation, and numerous other awards for her scholarship and teaching. And again, I think we're, we're incredibly pri- privileged to have her be here tonight uh, to share her expertise with us. Dr. Brown, thank you again. I really do appreciate it.
1: <laughs> well, thanks for the generous introduction. It's fun for me to be here tonight uh, to talk about charismatic spirituality, and an emphasis on fellowship of Holy Spirit will be the kind of thesis of this uh, segment of the seminar. And give you an overview of where we're going, we'll start off with a theology of uh, Holy Spirit from a charismatic perspective. I'll trace a brief history of charismatic movements, uh, particularly in America in the 20th century and up to the present day. Uh, and then we'll consider some of the issues that are raised by thinking about charismatic gifts in the modern world, in particular. So let's begin with some of the theological considerations. Then, uh, the term charismatic comes from the Greek uh, for uh, charism or a good gift of God's love or carries. Uh, and charismatic emphasis of spirituality or this kind of close, deepening relationship with God. Uh, emphasizes the cultivation of fellowship of Holy Spirit. And so here I'm drawing on the language of Corinthians, uh, that it's, uh, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Uh, Charismatics emphasize that God exists in three persons, Uh, not terribly kind of heretical theology here, but a real emphasis on this. So, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, but here the emphasis is important that Holy Spirit is a person, not an it, not a the, not a force, not an influence, but a person of the Trinity. And so in Acts, we see, for instance, that God anointed uh, Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and he went around doing good and healing all who are under the power of the devil. And here the key is that it is because God was with him. So God anoints Jesus with Holy Spirit, and then because of this anointing, God is with Jesus. Not just an impersonal force here. Uh, Charismatics also will sometimes make a kind of distinction, or give a both-and, that there's an infilling and there's empowerment of Holy Spirit, and they're not synonymous with each other. And so in Luke, we see that when all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too, and as he was praying, heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, right, left the Jordan, was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where he for 40 days was tempted by the devil. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. So when he's baptized, he's full of the Spirit. But then after he withstands the devil's temptations, it's then that he has the power of the Spirit, and that is when he begins his ministry of healing and casting out demons. He needs that power, not just that infill. There's also an emphasis by many charismatics on the presence of the Holy Spirit on earth with the Christians, whereas the Father and Son are positioned in heaven. And so here, an important verse is from John 16. Unless I go away, this is Jesus talking to his disciples, go away from earth, the advocate comforter will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. When he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. So you have this difference in positionality of God the Father, God the Son, together in the kind of place of power and dominion in heaven, Holy Spirit comes to be with Christians uh, to do the work on earth. And there's also an emphasis here that Father gives Holy Spirit to be in you, not just with you. So there's another distinction that's drawing it. And so in John, whoever believes in me will do the works I've been doing. They will do even greater things than me because I'm going to the Father. Note this departure again. I'm going to be with the Father where he is. I'll ask the Father, and he will give to you another advocate. And comforter is just another translation here. To help you and be with you forever, the spirit of truth. You know him for he lives with you and will be... In you. So there's a distinction. Uh, it's not a given, but in you. The counselor of the Holy Spirit and the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things, and will remind you of everything I have said to you. So we've got believers who have a uh, Holy Spirit with them, but there's the subsequent sending of Holy Spirit to be in them. And Christians can ask the Father to send the Holy Spirit to be with them. Luke, if you then though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven, notice Father in heaven again, will give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. So it's not a kind of taken for granted that belief in Jesus equals Holy Spirit in believers um, in the same way as when Holy Spirit is sent to believers. There's with versus in, different in position. There's also an emphasis among Charismatics on the importance of honoring the Holy Spirit. And so we have the Spirit presented as an advocate, a comforter, a counselor, as the Spirit of truth, but Holy Spirit can also be grieved. And this seems to be in a particular way that's contrasted with Father and Son. And so in Isaiah already, so Old Testament here, yet they rebelled, and grieved his Holy Spirit, and similarly, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So there's this kind of particular sensitivity of Holy Spirit, again, distinguished from Father and from Jesus. So fellowship with Holy Spirit is not something that can be taken for granted. It can be lost, uh, actually, the Scripture implies. And so the psalmist prays, do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. So it can be taken away, And in Matthew, anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against, sometimes translated blasphemes, the Holy Spirit, will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Now, a lot of Christians get worried about this verse, and they start worrying, well, what if I've accidentally blasphemed the Holy Spirit and now kind of my, my doom is sealed forever? Well, let's look at the context here, and I think we can gain some reassurance here. Uh, and this comes right after a point when Jesus uh, had a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute uh, brought him. Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. But then the critics say, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. So what's the problem here? The problem is that people are ascribing to demons the work of Holy Spirit in healing and giving deliverance from Demons. So that's the thing to, to not do. It's not good to say that Jesus is healing people by the devil, right? That, don't do that. Uh, but don't worry about kind of accidental life. Okay, so then there's also this emphasis, and this is something probably many of us have heard of, on a baptism with the Holy Spirit. So what, what is this about? Uh, so this is described in Acts, is probably your key text on this, as the promise of the Father. Um, lots of long passages here, I'm afraid. I'll get past these soon. Um, and Jesus says to his disciples, uh, kind of after his resurrection, before his ascension, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which, for, for which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, that in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. So notice there's this kind of waiting for the power of the Holy Spirit. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So it's important to wait for the power of the Holy Spirit to come so that being witnesses for Jesus, doing evangelism, will actually be effective and will achieve its intended result. The classic passage on baptism with the Holy Spirit is this description of the first Pentecost uh, after uh, the resurrection and it's long, but I'm going to read it because it's kind of the key text here. So when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit, now just the filling language, and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there was seen in Jerusalem certain God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven, when they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment, because each one heard their own language being spoken. Some, however, maybe drunk. Believers, They've been baptized in the name of Jesus, but they haven't yet received the Holy Spirit. This happens after the laying on of hands. Similarly, in Acts 19, when Paul placed his hands on them in Ephesus, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. So again, it's through the laying on of hands that the Holy Spirit is received. And how do you know he's been received? It's because of speaking in tongues and through prophecy charismatics will also em- will, will emphasize being filled with the Holy Spirit, as opposed to either just avoiding certain behavior, what I call the do-nots, or a one-time experience of, I was baptized in the Holy Spirit 40 years ago, and now everything's supposed to be great ever since then. But it's this ongoing infilling that many charismatics will emphasize, and so here in the key is Ephesians, instructions to what church practice should be like. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. We've heard this before, right? There's something about drunkenness with wine that gets compared to Holy Spirit. So instead, be filled with the Spirit. That's your alternative to being drunk with wine. Speaking to one another with songs, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord. So there's something joyful, right? A joyful giving of praise and thanksgiving, which might even be kind of analogous to to drunkenness, right? In the sense that this is, you don't have to kind of get drunk with wine, that's no good, but be filled with this joy of the Holy Spirit that's so kind of joyful and overflowing that people might even mistake it for a kind of drunkenness. It might make you a little uneasy, right? But this is kind of um, a charismatic reading of these scriptures. Alright, so then we also uh, have all kind of seen lists of the fruits and the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Nine fruits, and um, probably you can recite these. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And for instance, we have Jesus full of joy through the Holy Spirit. So kind of overflowing of of gifts, right? Or fruits. Uh, And then the nine nine gifts of the Holy Spirit. Might be a little less familiar with uh, these. Words of wisdom, words of knowledge, faith, healing, miracles, prophecy, discernment of spirits, tongues, and interpretation. So we've read these lists, right? But really the question is um, are spiritual gifts for today, or did gifts of the Holy Spirit cease? Uh, Perhaps at the time of the Bible or the time of the Uh, And those who would argue that gifts of the Spirit ceased at a certain point of time will often refer to this verse from Corinthians. But when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. So we have God's word, God's word is perfect. Maybe we don't need the operation of spiritual gifts anymore. Context is a good thing. And so just two verses later, uh, this is expanded. For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. For now I know in part, but then shall I know even whose I also am known. So when the perfect comes, I mean, has the perfect come is really the question. Well, do we see God face to face? And do we know all or do we we only know in part? Charismatics would argue if, if those aren't the case, then we still need gifts of the Holy Spirit until we get to that place. John Calvin was really the key architect of the doctrine of cessationism or uh, the argument that there was only a limited age of miracles. Uh, and the context was the Protestant Reformation. And basically the story was this. Catholics made a lot of claims of the miraculous. And in fact, they called on medical doctors to confirm their claims of the miraculous. And so when the Protestant reformers kind of made their complaints, uh, there was a challenge that was issued, and it was this. Where are your miracles to confirm the truth of this new doctrine? And the basic response given by the reformers was, we don't need miracles because we're not giving you a new doctrine. All we're affirming is the word of the Bible. And so basically, Protestants are having to explain their lack of an experience of miracles. And this is important because one of the criticisms that's um, sometimes made by non-charismatic evangelicals is that charismatics are way too focused on experience. Well, it's actually a lack of Experience, which is a kind of experience that's the um, origin of the doctrine of cessationism. Just kind of think about that. Um, and in practice, sometimes what this leads to is a reduction of Holy Spirit to the written word of the Bible uh, without an emphasis that goes a lot beyond that. Not always, but that sometimes is kind of the implication of where the emphasis is. So we might ask um, a way to kind of get through some of this well, cessation, not cessation, do we still need gifts, is asked the question, what is the purpose of spiritual gifts, things like healings and miracles? Is the purpose primarily evidence to prove God's word and the messengers of God's word? Or do miracles, healings, other gifts overflow from the very nature of God and his nature of compassion? In the first case, a few miracles are enough. You only need a a couple good healings of the the deaf and the blind to show that Jesus is the Messiah. But on the other hand, if the purpose of miracles is to demonstrate, and and really not even just to demonstrate, but just an overflow of God's compassion, then as many as there are needs, there are miracles to correspond to those needs. So there's kind of an abundance, an overflowing of the number even of miracles. uh, That's really based on human needs not simply on proof. And Matthew tells us that Jesus did heal out of compassion. He had compassion on them and he healed their sin. And we're told in Hebrews that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So if Jesus healed out of compassion before, we might expect that he would continue to heal out of compassion. And charismatics would argue, moreover, that healing was provided for in the atonement. Uh, so, just as Jesus' atoning death provided for the forgiveness of sins, it also provided for, uh, for uh, the healing of diseases. And so, in Isaiah, the classic passage of this, with his stripes we are healed. Well, is this maybe just a kind of metaphorical or spiritual healing? In Matthew, we're told that many who were demon possessed were brought to him, and he drove out the spirits of the word and healed all the sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took up our infirmities and bore our diseases. So it's a very literal, very physical healing that's said to fulfill this atonement passage. And if uh, healing is provided in the atonement, it should still be provided if forgiveness of sins is still provided. Jesus, moreover, healed as he preached the good news of the kingdom. The two went hand in hand for him. So in Matthew, he went throughout Galilee, teaching in the synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. And healing every disease and sickness among the temple, among the people. Not just a few, but everyone, uh, because it's a demonstration of the good news of the kingdom. And Jesus also commissioned his followers to heal. And Matthew, as you go, proclaim this message, the kingdom of heaven has come near. What does it mean for the kingdom of heaven to come near? It means heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those with leprosy, drive out demons. Well, maybe this applied just to the um, early disciples. Well, New Testament epistles give instructions for the church, and these included healing. In James, classic passage, is anyone of sick, he should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord, and the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. If he has sinned, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other that you may be healed. So, these are instructions given to the church. Uh, no indication that those were for the early church but not for the later church. Okay, so that's our little theology uh, lesson here. Uh, I want to give just a very brief history of charismatic movements, especially in America, from, um, I'm going to start a little before the 20th century. I'm going to start with John Wesley, who was a revivalist of the First Great Awakening, uh, founder of Methodism in Britain and in America, uh, and a major uh, theological, Emphasis of early Methodism was uh, what Wesley called perfect love or entire sanctification. And so, in other words, he wasn't concerned only with the conversion experience, uh, justification, or the imputation of Christ's righteousness, but with growth in holiness or sanctification, that lifelong process of becoming holy, and it's through uh, the Holy Spirit that he, he thought. Phoebe Palmer picks up on Wesley's doctrine in the 19th century. She's a lay Methodist woman who uh, influentially started a Tuesday meeting for the promotion of holiness in New York City. Uh, Clergy and people from all different denominations came, and this was the start of a holiness movement with particularly Methodist kinds of roots that spread throughout the 19th century. Charles Finney was a revivalist of the Second Great Awakening from the Reformed Tradition, Uh, And he was influential in the higher um, Christian life movement, which was kind of the reformed version of of holiness. William Seymour, we're now moving into the 20th century, was an African-American evangelist and pastor who was a part of the Azusa Street Revivals of Los Angeles, California, often seen as one of the birthplaces of Pentecostalism. Uh, And sometimes scholars will talk about three waves of interest in the Holy Spirit in the 20th century. So the first is the birth of Pentecostalism at the start of the 20th century, and we'll get to to the second too. John G. Lake, though, comes out of this first wave. He was a a part of the Azusa Street Revivals, and one of his contributions was the founding of what he called Healing Rooms. Uh, And these were based uh, in part in Spokane, Washington. He actually also started them in a couple other places. Uh, And he basically took over a business space. So he wasn't operating out of churches. He wanted to kind of a a business strip mall. And he would get (coughs) his two or three lay Christians, put them in a room, and have them pray for someone else for healing. Uh, And uh, then he would, like, go get medical doctors and x-rays to confirm that they actually were healed. Uh, And we'll see that this is influential later on as well. But he's kind of the one who started this idea. We're going to fast forward now into the middle of the 20th century with Dennis Bennett, and his significance here is that he was an Episcopal rector in Van Nuys, California, who claimed that he was baptized with the Holy Spirit, and he started speaking in tongues. Um, And this happened in 1959, and Newsweek and Time Magazine actually picked up on it and said that this was the start of something new, and it was a kind of ecumenical charismatic movement. Uh, And this, then, is the second wave of the 1960s and 1970s. Now, despite that sort of experience of speaking in tongues, generally Charismatics uh, do not claim that you have to speak in tongues as the initial evidence of baptism in the Holy Spirit. This claim is made by some denominational Pentecostals, but if you're going to say, what's the difference between a Charismatic and a Pentecostal, I would actually make this one of the, the dividing points, that um, you may speak in tongues, but you don't have to as kind of evidence of your. baptism. Catherine Coleman was another important figure of the Second Wave Charismatic Renewal Movement. And she really ushered belief and spiritual gifts into mainstream denominations. One of her parents was a Baptist, the other one was a Methodist. Uh, and in her services, what's interesting is she would practice healing and giving of words of knowledge and even kind of people being slain in the spirit, falling over. Um, but she wouldn't allow people to prophesy or speak in tongues in her services. And this was because it just seemed too Pentecostal, too fringe, and too off-putting to many mainstream church members. Uh, And this really represents a kind of transition between classic Pentecostalism and this new charismatic movement. So people tended to be wealthier, better educated, more interested in medical documentation. Early Pentecostals were sometimes a bit anti-medical. But Coleman actually required people to present before and after medical records before she would publish their testimonies in one of her volumes. And you've got some of those volumes of testimonies like I Believe in Miracles that are on your list of suggested readings. Francis McNutt is another uh, important figure of the charismatic second wave. He was a Catholic. That still is. Last I checked, he was in his 80s and on the conference circuit still. Uh, And he was educated at Harvard University, at the Catholic University of America, at Dominican Seminary, where he got a PhD, and he's often attracted some very highly educated even medical audiences. He was also a co-author on a medical journal article, and that's also in your uh, recommended readings. Uh, And so here we've got the birth of the Catholic charismatic renewal. Fast forward a little bit more to John Wimber, founder of the Association of Vineyard Churches, and first started off uh, basically just reading in the Bible uh, that the kingdom of God included things like healings and casting out of demons. And so even though he hadn't experienced this, he decided to start preaching on this in his church. And in fact, he preached on healing for 10 months before a single person reported healing in his services, and he lost about half of his congregation. Then people started reporting healing, like, a lot. Uh, And so he became known for promoting power evangelism and basically arguing if you want your evangelism to be effective, there needs to be power of the Holy Spirit behind it in things like prophecy and healings and miracles. And so he started equipping seminars for lay people to practice spiritual gifts. And he was really important in promoting the idea that it's not just clergy and leaders, but everyone should be doing the stuff, or sometimes he'd say everyone gets to play, and there's this kind of lighthearted character who is kind of just. And so here then we have the third wave of interest in the Holy Spirit starting around the 1980s and the 1990s. So where does that lead us today in terms of our contemporary era and uh, the charismatic movement? Well, global Pentecostal and charismatic Christianity is just enormous and growing in today's scene. Uh, There's something like 500 million Pentecostals and Charismatics out of the world's 2 billion Christians, And incidentally, about 100 million of them are Catholics. Uh, And 71% of them are non-white. 66% of them belong to the two-thirds world poor. 80% of the world's population lacks medical care. So this kind of correspondence may not be that surprising. People don't have any other access to healing, so they're interested. Does God heal? And in fact, in many parts of the world where people have these kind of very tangible physical needs... Any kind of, quote, true God is someone who not only saves people for the afterlife, but meets practical needs in the here and now. So if you want to even be heard, you need to show that it's not just you're saved from your sins for the afterlife, but there's some real, tangible relationship with God now. Well, what distinguishes Pentecostal and Charismatic Christianity from other forms of Christianity Really, I would argue that healing is kind of the point of distinction, and I'm not the only one who argues this. Uh, Surveys and polls from countries around the world make this point, that even though we might think of Pentecostalism or charismatic movements as being associated with things like speaking in tongues or teaching on financial prosperity, send me all your money so that you'll get rich, or even snake handling, really that kind of misses the central emphasis on healing, and that's kind of this, this key, 70% of Pentecostals, charismatics around the world claim that they've had personal healing experiences. And if you look at parts of the world where Christianity is kind of really growing, cutting-edge, first-generation, as many as 90% of first-generation converts say that they personally had a healing experience for themselves or a family member, and that was the primary reason why they converted to Christianity. Not just second, but primary reason. Uh, you, if you want to hear more about kind of some of the world diversity of charismatic movements, this is the, the edited volume that Dan's been helpfully uh, marketing for me here. Um, but there are 17 other scholars, this isn't primarily me who's writing this, um, who are writing about charismatic Pentecostal movements in different areas of the world and among different communities. And, and you can see really some of the, uh, the variety that exists within Pentecostal I want to highlight just a couple of figures uh, from our era that I've looked at in my own research. One of them is Randy Clark. Uh, He was the guest preacher when the Toronto Blessing revivals in the 1990s began. And basically the short version of the story is that he was invited from St. Louis, Missouri to Toronto, that's the Toronto Blessing, for a four-day sermon series. And then to everyone's surprise, people um, started to uh, laugh with joy. They started to report experiences of healing Uh, They started to feel like the Holy Spirit was just really present in this unusual, tangible way. And so they kept the meetings going uh, over the course of the next 12 years, like six hours a night, six nights a week of meetings. Some three million people visited Toronto. Many of them, when they returned to their home churches, said that they started to experience the same kind of charismatic phenomenon there. So very influential. And Clark himself went on to found a missions organization called Global Awakening, which is now active in 36 countries. Heidi and Roland Baker were two of the pilgrims to Toronto. They visited there, felt they were transformed by it. And they're now directors of IOS Ministries in Mozambique, which has spread into some 25 countries. And they claim to have started 10,000 churches and to uh, daily provide for the needs of 10,000 orphan children. And they point to their experience in Toronto as making all of that uh, start to happen. And we'll say more about that uh, in particular. I also want to mention one other figure, Cal Pierce, who's the director of the International Association of Healing Rooms, which is based in Spokane, Washington. Pierce was himself a retired real estate developer who said that he reopened the John G. Lake healing rooms of the early 20th century. And so now there are hundreds of healing rooms affiliated with this movement, and it's usually just two or three lay Christians in a room Praying for someone uh, for physical needs, emotional, spiritual needs, and a lot of claims of healing come out of this movement. And in fact, there's a Bloomington Healing Rooms, which isn't officially affiliated but is modeled on that same kind of Slopeham um, uh, set of practices. Uh, in fact, there's uh, business cards for the uh, Bloomington Healing uh, Rooms that are on the back table. Okay, so what do we mean when we talk about healing practices? And I want to just say a little bit about my studies of uh, practices in North America as well as Brazil and Mozambique. Now, most people, um, uh, at least in America at large, but I think often in the evangelical church, have a sense that, well, there's kind of these high-profile faith healers. People like Benny Hinn in the white suit, or maybe Steve Martin, who's happy to take a lot of money from you for uh, the healings you hope to get. Um, In practice, I find that that doesn't tend to be what most healing practices uh, are anything like. Uh, More often, it's mundane, secular spaces like praying in a hospital, praying in a business parking lot, perhaps a Walmart. Uh, Ordinary people, not big leaders, not a lot of flamboyance, no money-changing hands. Uh, I have also looked at big healing services, particularly those coming out of the Toronto Blessing. Here's a picture of Randy Clark praying for people there. When Global Awakening travels today, there's usually a team of somewhere between 60 and 120 lay Christians who travel um, along with Global Awakening, and so here we've got some Americans who are there with some young Brazilian translators, and they're in this big stadium-sized crowd of people who want to hear the message of the gospel, and they uh, want to hear about healing, and they want to receive healing. Here are Heidi and Roland, Roland Baker in uh, Baker, rather in uh, Mozambique. We'll hear more about them in a bit. Uh, this is just a picture of John G. Lake's original healing room's address uh, in Spokane. Uh, and that's where Cal Pierce first opened the healing rooms. Uh, they moved to a new location after an earthquake, and there you can see me taking the picture. This is the inside of one of the prayer rooms in Spokane, and I'm going to zoom in on that second picture on the right. Uh, important prayer supplies, need breath vents so that you don't... Uh, uh, away the, the person you're praying for. I and mean, then here's some communion elements, and so maybe kind of some overlap here with the churchly sacramental spirituality, because charismatics emphasize that healing is provided in the body of Jesus, just as forgiveness is provided in the blood of Jesus. Uh, important theological one, And it comes from the atonement. Here's a wall of healing with testimonies from Spokane, and I'll zero in. Brain tumor healed, praise his name. Medicine reduced for thyroid after prayer. Jesus is wonderful. Or this one, healed of total mental breakdown. Stopped by on the way to sacred heart mental ward and was healed and went home. Praise Jesus. I'm pictured to prove it, I guess. Okay. So how do we think about charismatic gifts in the modern world? Uh, Some figures I want to throw out here. About 23% of Americans would identify in some way with charismatic or Pentecostal movements. More broadly than this, 82% of Americans say that they believe in the healing power of prayer. More striking than this is that 73% of medical doctors in the U.S. say that they believe miraculous healing occurs today. So somehow modernization hasn't led to an eradication of belief in spiritual gifts. But what do we make of this? And in particular, can and should science test charismatic? Uh, I want to argue that there are three basic groups of people here. Uh, for some, no evidence of charismatic gifts like healing would be enough. Miracles don't happen, so scientific proof of miracles makes no sense. It's incompatible with science, or healing isn't for today. There's a middle group um, with the healing agnostic in it. They'd like to believe, but need evidence. Is there scientific evidence of God doing today? Or the third group, the believer in healing. Of course God heals today. We don't need proof or don't test God. And I would argue what I've seen in my research is that most people belong to that second category. Uh, They want to believe, but they want modern scientific evidence, medical evidence, to help them believe that that healing is available through God today. (laughs) So what does empirical or scientific research on prayer in particular for healing uh, reveal, And I'm going to focus now in on healing, uh, especially because I've made this argument that healing is really that central spiritual gift that distinguishes Charismatics and Pentecostals from other Christians. And so I'm going to comfortably kind of zone in and focus in on, on healing. Uh, there have been mixed results from scientific studies. So for instance, Randolph Byrd did a study of cardiac patients, and he found that if you gave people the name of someone they never met and their condition on a piece of paper and said, pray for them, the people who had that happen for them would get better. And those who didn't uh, got worse. And so this has been called distant intercessory prayer. Another well-known study of distant intercessory prayer was done by Herbert Benson. uh, And this uh, probably, if anyone's heard of any study, this is the one they've heard of. Uh, And it's because there was a very disturbing conclusion that Benson reached. People who received prayer for healing didn't get any better. And if they knew that they were getting prayer for healing, they did worse. Now, presumably, this wasn't because the prayers actually made them do worse, but because uh, they figured they were in such bad condition that someone thought they needed to be prayed for, and this made them anxious, and that's not just the hardest cardiac (laughs) patient. So, however you explain it. So, one issue here with both studies like Byrne and Benson is people don't usually pray like this with a little name on a piece of paper for someone you've never met. Right? That's just not how it's done. People who are expectantly praying for healing, they think their prayers are going to actually matter versus they're dutifully kind of saying, oh, I'll pray for you, and then they probably never do. Right? They'll usually go to someone they know, put hands on them, hug them, sympathize with their sufferings. It's up close, it's personal, it's even emotional. Uh, something that I call proximal intercessory prayer, or PIP. And so I argue that if we're going to design scientific studies, we need to look at how people actually are going about their praying, and so an interesting study to, on this note uh, was done by Gail uh, Matthews, Sally Marlowe, and Francis McNutt. This is the same Francis McNett of the Catholic Charismatic Renewal, so he knew how people really prayed for healing. Um, useful to have someone like that as a part of the study. And what they found, they compared distant and proximal intercessory prayer. Distant prayer didn't do any good. The proximal prayer did. So maybe that's a better way forward on this kind of research. I'll say more about that in a moment as well. Well, how should charismatic prayer be tested. Uh, And here I want to draw a modern analogy to the Hubble Space Telescope, Uh, and one of the reasons it takes such wonderful pictures is it uses several different types of cameras. And so I would argue that you need to have multiple approaches, not just clinical studies, whether it's proximal or distant intercessory prayer, uh, but rather a variety. And and this is what I try to do in the book Testing Prayer. And I basically um, propose a model of four different approaches to looking at prayer. First of all, medical records are useful for asking a particular question. Are healing claims documented? Second, if we look at survey research, we can get insight into how do sufferers perceive healing prayer. Third, clinical trials help us to ask: can health outcomes of prayer be measured? And finally, follow-up: Do healing experiences produce lasting effects? And I want to say a little bit about each one of these kinds of Uh, so, camera one, medical records, are human things document. Uh, and I want to give, um, just, a, medical records have been pre- presented for all kinds of conditions. And I'm not going to go through each of these examples, but to give you some sense of the variety of conditions, people have presented before and after records. Right. And records are useful to a degree in confirming that there was no obvious medical or natural explanation for observed Uh, Now, that doesn't prove that uh, a divine or superhuman agent was responsible, or even that prayer was responsible, or even that the condition was permanently healed. It just shows that there was some kind of correspondence between the claim and what the medical records show. But as we'll see, that's an important thing to do. I want to give some case studies of this then. Uh, Daisy is one of the informants I met. She had worn hearing aids for some 30 years, uh, and she had a progressively worsening hereditary inner ear problem, and it caused her mother to go deaf. Uh, and she uh, said, uh, well actually she didn't just say, she presented um, audiometry tests from 1999, not pictured here, uh, that showed uh, moderate hearing loss. I did picture the 2004 tests, which showed worsening hearing. It was now moderately severe to severe. And what we found on this chart is the right ear is the O, the left ear is the X. And basically the lower down on the chart you are, the worse the hearing. And we see speech recognition threshold with six feet for the right and the left ear. Uh, The higher the threshold, the worse the hearing. Well, Daisy claimed that in 2008, she received proximal intercessory prayer. uh, And she, quote, felt like fingers on fire and the warmth of the Holy Spirit inside of me, after which she could reportedly hear without her hearing. Well, two weeks later, she went back to her audiologist to have her hearing be tested, and she showed normal thresholds in the lower frequencies with moderate loss in the higher frequencies. And notice that all of these levels are higher up on the chart, thus better in hearing. And we see a speech recognition threshold of 25 in the right ear and 15 in the left ear. Uh, now, this wasn't a temporary shift in hearing because she had another screening done in 2010, which I didn't picture, which showed that she still had normal hearing threshold in the speech frequencies. Now, medical records do not prove that God healed Daisy through prayer. But what they do show is a kind of confirmation that Daisy's claim of improved hearing had some basis. In fact, she did actually hear better. I want to give another example of how um, medical records have been presented to support resurrection claims. And so here we have a death certificate with deceased uh, written as the conclusion there. And so here the story is that a healing evangelist, uh, Mahesh um, wha- he's, a, he's a Kenyan of Indian descent who works in the same networks with Heidi Beaker and Clark. <coughs> he's based in the Carolinas now. Well, he claims that he was in Zaire, or now Democratic of the Republic of the Congo, uh, and he had a word of knowledge uh, uh, or a divine revelation for someone whose son had died earlier that morning. He prayed for a man whose six-year-old son had been diagnosed as dead eight hours previously, uh, and this was after the doctors had tried to revive him by administering the injection by sticking needles into his arms and chest, and by holding an open flame against his legs. Well, at the time of prayer, the boy started to move in the arms of a relative. There's no way to prove that this boy was really dead, uh, but his family was sufficiently convinced that they all converted to Christianity. Uh, Shabda (coughs) went back and visited the boy some five years later, and he was still doing fine. Uh, Shabda also gives another report. He says that he fortuitously uh, took a photograph of this 60-year-old Pakistani woman who was begging at an evangelistic service shortly before she uh, received her sight. So here she's testifying to her healing, and she says that she saw a brilliant flash of light. Her vision was restored just after Shabda said this. Now, Lord Jesus, show these people that the message of the gospel is true. And then she can see. Okay, another example here uh, from Heidi Baker, the Mozambique missionary. She claims that she's been miraculously healed a number of times. Uh, This includes dyslexia, pneumonia, uh, multiple sclerosis, and most recently, a methicillin-resistant staphylococcus aureus, or MRSA infection. And I'll give this last story. So Baker says that in 2005, uh, she was hospitalized in South Africa, uh, as well as Malaysia, for a total of 32 days, uh, on the strongest antibiotics available for MRSA, and yet the doctors told her, write your tombstone. So she checked herself out of the hospital and went to see a, quote, specialist in Toronto. Uh, This wasn't a medical doctor, it was Jesus. Uh, She was scheduled to preach there, although no one expected her to really get up and preach. They thought she was going to die there. Um, Well, there's a conference DVD of her preaching, and it shows that at the end of her two-hour-long sermon, I'm only going to preach for one hour tonight, so two-hour-long sermon, uh, she seems stronger than she was at the beginning. Well, she also has medical records that confirm her claim that she went to a hospital that specializes in the treatment of MRSA two days later, uh, and the medical professionals who examined her were convinced that she had had MRSA, but they did laboratory tests that showed no Staphylococcus uh could be isolated. Uh, she didn't need to be hospitalized. They simply sent her home and said, well, for some reason, you don't have this anymore. So again, this doesn't prove that she was miraculously healed, but it does show that doctors were convinced that she had the condition, and now she did it. Confirms details of her story. One final example of medical records. Uh, Frank claims that he um, uh, was unable to read with his left eye for 24 years as a result of a shrapnel wound until one night he received prayer. I asked Frank for his medical records, and he sent me an optometrist's report. Uh, and it stated that on O2, the left eye uncorrected visual acuity was 2200 whereas in 2007, it was now 2040. Pretty big shift, right? 2200, 2040. Well, when I followed up with the optometrist, he revealed that the record had been, quote, altered. The phrases on 02 and now 2040" had been added to the record. Now, the meaning of the record is totally different when you get rid of those two phrases. Now what it says is that in 2007, his vision was 2200. After Frank's supposed healing. Such cases of apparent fraud don't seem to be common, um, but they do seem to exist, and medical records examination is one way to sift out which claims are more credible than others. And this is one of the reasons why I argue even for people who believe in healing, looking at medical records is actually a really important thing to do. Uh, And in fact, there's a new institute, the Global Medical Research Institute, which has just been launched. Uh, It's a nonprofit research organization that seeks to apply the rigorous methods of evidence practices. Uh, we've got a brand new website uh, which you can find globalmri.org uh, and basically it's a place where people can submit their before and after medical records uh, and then they're evaluated by panel experts who will publish the results both on the website and in peer-reviewed journals. And this is an effort to do some of that sifting out uh, of, of cases and claims you Okay, more briefly now, I'm going to look at Hammer 2 or survey. And where surveys are useful is in shedding light on the perceptions of prayer recipients. They can't confirm the accuracy of those perceptions, but they're nonetheless revealing. And so I looked at surveys from 921 respondents from North America, Brazil, and Mozambique, and what I found is that 60% of them reported that they would had some kind of past healing experience. Uh, and even relatively minor healings, this caught my attention, seemed to be quite memorable. And so here an example is a British man who said, I had muscle spasms in my upper back with pain about 35 years ago and was prayed over and received total healing in the mid-70s. Not a trivial experience for this man, as some scholars have argued most healing claims are. 72% of those surveys said that they currently needed healing, and the most common complaint was just pain in some part of their body. 37% reported that they had had a new healing experience at the surveyed conference or church service. Uh, and what's interesting here is that many people had already received prayer for the same condition on a previous experience, believed that they'd had improvement, but then as they got more prayer, they got more improvement. And so here are really telling examples from a Brazilian woman. She said, I felt with a reading problem from 2002 to 2004, and I was still a prayer marathon after being prayed for 49 times. So she had some perseverance to keep getting prayer. 87% of those who claimed healing based their claims on some kind of sensible improvement in symptoms. Their pain was uh, relieved, or they could do something they couldn't do before. Very few of them are just claiming healing by faith. Uh, and what was interesting here is that even those who had a high self-reported faith level were actually no more likely to claim healing than those who admitted they had pretty weak faith, but they were willing to go and get there. And many of them attributed their healing less to their faith than to God's love and so for here, for instance, God's great love, the love of Christ for me, God met me and knows me, Jesus lives and heals, God's power, love. Camera three then, clinical trials. Can health outcomes of prayer be measured? This is where I was involved in publishing in the Southern Medical Journal, a study of the therapeutic effects of proximal recessory prayer on auditory and visual impairments in rural Mozambique. Kind of a mouthful of the title there. Working the number of medical researchers on it, and I actually want to show you a video that's just um, less than five minutes here to give you a sense of the kind of prayer practices uh, that I was looking at, and just why I use the methods
2: that I did. This takes some serious spiritual guts.
1: This is how they film finger of God, edge. which is on your. Get screen the
2: screen. people to come by singing and dancing. Show the Jesus mm-hmm. film. For many, this is the first movie they've ever seen. And they often yell warnings to Jesus when he's on trial. After that, tell the people who Jesus is and how much he loves them. Then prove it by healing the deaf and the blind. I'd never seen anything like it. i never even heard of anything like it. But here it was, right in front of my eyes. A woman from Laguna Beach, California, with a Ph.D. in Systematic Theology from King's College in London, bringing the boldness of faith to the desperate people that, quite frankly, took my breath away. So we went to the bush, we went to a Muslim village that had never heard the name of Jesus before, a village of mud huts and dirty feet, where the women walked 10 hours to simply get water. We danced, we sang, we watched a film about Jesus, and Heidi preached. Before the night began, God told Heidi not to pray for anyone until, quote, the deaf woman came forward. So she called for her, over and over again, for 20 minutes. She said later that if the woman never came forward, we were all going home. But then, from out of the darkness, she came.
3: of God has come upon you, as Jesus said the kingdom of God has come upon you, now what do we do? You know, now that we know that God is real now that we know he's done this how do we respond?
1: Uh, is uh, we um, took an audiometer and vision charts and we prospectively recruited 24 consecutive most subjects. And you can see it takes a while to get 24 of them in that that kind of situation. Uh, But even with this small of a sample size, uh, there were large enough effects in individual subjects and consistent enough effects across study populations in order for us to arrive at statistical significance. And our results were for hearing. We found highly significant improvements post PIP And two subjects a thresholds reduced by over 50 decibels. Now to give you a sense of scale here, if you're standing right next to a motorcycle, that would be 100 decibels. Perfect hearing in a very quiet environment, that would be zero decibels. Uh, So we hear the individual changes in hearing here on the left. The right hand shows you that the um, ambient noise didn't really get any lower, so it wasn't just quieter when we retested people compared with the hearing changes that we saw. For vision, we got similar results. We found significant improvements post PIP. Three subjects went from 2400, which is reading the top line of an eye chart, or worse, uh, to 2080, which is relatively small print uh, or better. One subject went from being unable to count fingers from one foot away to being able to read the 2125 line of an eye chart after about one minute of uh, EIP. And so here we see the individual hearing changes, and this is the statistical test that we use to show significance. We also compared our results to studies of hypnosis and suggestion. And then the PIP resulted in greater average, which is here, and greater maximum improvements in visual acuity. And uh, the, the comparison is a useful one because you'd expect many similar possible confounds with something like hypnosis as a PIPB, things like the well-known placebo effect, and yet we found these much larger effect sizes. Uh, and we also were able to do a replication study in Brazil and got largely similar results from that as well. So that's the clinical research in a very small nutshell, maybe a little almond shell, and so that leads us then to camera four. Uh, Do healing experiences produce lasting effects? And this is my my last point here. Many informants claimed that they were still healed as many as eight years after their initial experience, and that's how long I spent studying um, these um, informants. Now often there's no way to verify these kinds of claims, but you can sometimes look at changes in demeanor, changes in behavior, and trace the influence of individuals who reported healing on other people. And a pattern emerged in this research. Those who experienced healing, then were motivated to pray for other people who needed healing, they reported healing, they prayed for others, and you get this kind of ripple effect uh, that that goes on. Um, So Randy Clark, claimed that he was first healed himself at the age of 18 from a car accident. Uh, there's no way to prove that, he, that God was responsible. He just recovered a lot more quickly than anyone expected. But we can trace the effects of this perceived divine healing on Clark and other people he uh, influenced, such as Heidi Baker, and then to trace their influence on others. So, for instance, Heidi Baker influenced Francis, a South African man who was allegedly beaten to death. Uh, while he was working with Baker, and he was even put into a hospital morgue. Church members prayed for Francis. He seemed to be raised from the dead. Upon arriving, or upon reviving, rather, Francis only could croak out two words, forgive them. By the following morning, though, all of his wounds had healed. He went straight to the prison to secure the release of his apparent murderer. Uh, This man became a Christian, attended Bible school, and um, became a pastor, Uh, And so in one sense, it doesn't really matter whether Francis was really dead or really raised uh, back to life uh, because he believed he had been murdered, and yet he forgave his apparent murderer. Uh, And he did this because he believed that God had loved him enough to raise him from the dead. Uh, Similarly, uh, after extending forgiveness, Francis recovered much more quickly than anyone expected him to do. And the assailant, who believed he was a murderer and yet had been forgiven by the person he killed, uh, had, a, had a change in, in his life, right? This motivated him to change the entire direction of his life. I'll give another example of George, who is an American man, who, like Francis, believes that he was rescued from a death sentence. He was diagnosed with an untreatable brain tumor, and he received prayer at many charismatic conferences, including from Randy Clark and Mahesh Shabda. George, in turn, took other people to conferences and began to pray for other people's healing. So, for instance, there was Mimi, who we took to him a Mahesh conference, Mimi was dramatically healed from asthma, after which she won a track scholarship to college. Uh, she began to pray for her friends, a number of them decided to become Christians. George also prayed for a woman named Donna, who had had chronic side pain for the past 10 years. She immediately experienced partial relief, which encouraged her to persevere in seeking healing for the next two years. Donna's final healing was actually rather anticlimactic. She was not at the time seeking healing for herself, but was rather bringing a friend who needed healing to a conference, A speaker had a word of knowledge for someone who had side pain. Donna stood up in response to the word, noticed that the pain was gone, and sat down, and no one knew that anything had actually happened. There was nothing visibly obvious to observers. And the conference DVD shows that the entire episode took about five seconds. Meanwhile, Donna, uh, or meanwhile, George, rather, who is fluent in Spanish, traveled around Latin America as a healing evangelist, and he met Antonio, a Nicaraguan pastor who was relieved of a toothache. Uh, while George was preaching. Uh, Well, Antonio went to the hospital to pray for his mother, who had been experiencing heart pain. The heart pains disappeared, she was released from the hospital. The next day, Antonio prayed for a member of his church by the name of Giovanni, and he was relieved of leg pain. Giovanni, in turn, prayed for his wife, who experienced relief from a throat tumor, and now she was able to sing again, where she couldn't before. And then Giovanni also prayed for a woman whose baby had a fever. Well, not only did the baby feel cooler after the prayer, but the woman reported that uh, her broken toe had been healed, even though the person hadn't been praying for the healing of her toe. Uh, It had just sort of happened anyway. And so it's in this way that one healing experience often sets off chain reactions in which many people report experiencing God's love through healing. So where is this all taken Uh, We've looked then at a little bit of the theology, a little bit of the history, and then at some of the um, issues that are raised by contemporary practices of spiritual gifts. Uh, And and here's the basic conclusion that I want to draw. That what distinguishes charismatic Christianity and spirituality is an emphasis on fellowship of the Holy Spirit, and this is often expressed through ongoing experiences of spiritual fruits and gifts, and particularly healing. Although modern science cannot prove that charismatic gifts are in operation today, uh, empirical tests can illumine some of the effects of charismatic practices and help to explain to us this wildfire global spread of charismatic Christianity. So that's pretty much where I want to end up, and that leaves us with a few minutes for uh, questions, which I'm happy to field.